Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. Y'all ready? This series that we're talking about is Death, Burial, and Resurrection, the Story of Easter. Um, John said this looks like Miami Vice colors. Maybe he's not used to me picking pink, but uh, you like it? Do y'all see Miami Vice? I don't know if I see Miami Vice. I see, I see a sunrise. Maybe you may... Yes. Those are hey, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, today, the, the conclusion or the goal of today, you probably will find some practical things that you can look at to incorporate in your, into your life, but, but today I kind of want it to be a, a washing, a, a mind renewal exercise in what Christ accomplished at the end of, right at the end of the cross and going into the grave. We're not going to leave him in the grave. Next week, we're going to bring him out in the resurrection. And then uh, the week after that, which will give me a great idea last week to, to talk about his reigning kingdom after that. So this is going from a three-part to a four-part series. But today, we're going to look at the end of the cross and the grave experience. And so it'll be a lot of teaching, a lot of scripture. Y'all ready for that? Yep. I mean, it's a lot, I'm, I'm telling you. And I will post it all up. And Jimmy, I'll send you my notes because I know it will take you forever to go through the sermon to get these out. So email me if you get to start to work on it and I hadn't sent it to you. All right, last week, just super quick recap, we talked about Jesus died in our place. 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 10, 10, and by that will we have been sanctified, say sanctified, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You're not sanctified by your works and efforts. You're sanctified through the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. And then 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes we're healed. And I would add spirit, soul, and body. It's 100% complete in your spirit now. And it's kind of emanating out into your soul and your will and your mind. And as much as you will renew your mind to experience that spiritual reality, it's the down payment, it's the deposit of your salvation, of your eternal redemption. It's secure now. And one day, you'll get that new body too. How awesome will that be? And it'll be like Jesus' body. You know, he showed up, he ate with his disciples, but yet he could disappear, walk through walls, whatever. I mean... It's going to be pretty amazing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him he might become, we might become the righteousness of God. So we concluded with the idea that we are dead to sin and alive to God through Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again because you might commit acts of sin. And if we look at the biblical definition of what sin is, it's uh, to know good and not do it, anything not of faith. I promise you, you still sin. You still have the capacity to commit acts of sin. 
But that is not the basis through which God is relating to you anymore. The basis through which God is relating to you now is this covenant that is, it is bought and paid for in the blood of Christ. Sin still affects you. It still brings death into your life. It can destroy your job, your marriage, your relationships, and your health. Uh, but it's not going to disqualify you for the love of God and for the, the redemption that Christ paid for for you. And if you preach it properly, the religious people will always ask you, well, it kind of sounds like you're saying you're going to sin. And then remember last week, I kind of made the joke, read Romans 6. So when you're trying to communicate these concepts to your friends and family or whoever God leads you to, you know you've run across a religious person. And I'm not saying they're bad people. They just Sometimes people just don't know. They don't know the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. They don't know this new covenant that we have that secured called Sarah and I to start this church is to constantly declare the finished work of Christ. Amen? Amen. So here we go. Today, I want to talk about this idea of Jesus descending into Hades. All right. So I want to start here. Um, you want to, there we go. All right. So again, lots and lots of scripture. I'm going to kind of let the text do the preaching today. I will try not to comment that much, but sometimes I can't help myself. So, All right, ready? So we will start with uh, looking at Jesus in the garden. He's about to be arrested and give himself up for us, and this is the scene. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, when he, and he knelt down and prayed. You, and just keep up with me. As soon as I get to the end, go ahead and go to the next one saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Now, this is Jesus praying to the Father, asking God to change the plan. He had a different will or capacity to have a different will from his Father. He was an independent entity. And again, I'm not going to try to explain the Trinity today because that's like, I don't even, I can't explain the Trinity. We know it's God in three persons, right? Jesus is God, but yet he had a human experience. I love the human elements that we see in his life. So he prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And that happens with you as well. Angels come and help you. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then sweat became like great drops of blood. Now, why was he sweating? Because he was resisting temptation. He was fighting against the opportunity to sin. The sin would have been going against the will of God. The sin would have been uh, not, not obeying what God called him to do, right? And, and to the point that it was such a difficult process for him that, he, that in his, his body was so resisting this idea that it caused the sweat to come out and, and, and must have been... I mean, can you imagine how stressed you have to be for your capillaries to start bursting under this stress and, and it come out in, in sweat and blood? Great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Uh, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, a Greek phrase, that is... My God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Now, some people will try to say that God did not forsake him, um, that he was just kind of citing a particular passage, but he was. He was forsaken. God, on that cross, cut Jesus off from him. Now, what we're going to talk about today is his grave experience. Um, there's a debate around what his experience was as soon as he died and, and what he went through in the grave, whether or not he just passed into that realm as the conquering king, or if in the first part of it he also suffered in that place. You know, we're going to look at a few different options. I have a particular belief. You'll see what that is. But I, I'm really going to try to let the text speak for itself today. So this idea here, that he's, that he's referencing, so why have you forsaken me? He's actually referencing Psalm 22. And he's not just quoting Scripture. He's, he's giving insight into what he's going through. Now, in a minute, we're going to read Acts 2. And Acts 2, is a, there's a really cool sermon from that David, through the Psalms, prophesied the experience of Jesus on the cross and in the grave and in the resurrection. He, he, he makes that case and he, he states it clearly. So we'll get to that in a second. But I wanted to read through Psalm 22 together. Just to give you, so, so when Jesus is on the cross and he's having this experience hoarded and he used these words is so that we can go deeper into the Psalms and realize what he's going through. So what we're about to read, Psalm 22, is deeper insight into the mindset of Jesus while he's on the cross and even in the grave. Are you with me? So it's not just that, because a lot of times we, we don't know, like when it says Jesus went and prayed all night long, and then came and walked on the water. Wouldn't you like to know how he prayed? Like, what did he say? Well, this gives us insight into what he was thinking and feeling and emotionally going through on the cross, and I believe in the grave. And there's lots of Psalms that uh, highlight what he's experiencing, and we're going to read several of them today. Well, a couple of them. All right, so Psalm 22, verse 1, and we'll just read through this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are, now, this is David. It does apply to David. When David wrote this, I don't remember exactly what the scenario was for him, but he, it was David's experience. But again, in Acts 2, the precedent is set that it's also prophecy of the Messiah. And for Jesus to say the exact phrase, on the cross, there's legal, biblical uh, exegesis that you can apply to deep to dig into this. And I, I'm saying it technically just so that we understand. It's not like we're just um, trying to pull out a psalm for an emotional effect. There's, there's actual uh, theology behind going into a psalm like this to see deeper into the heart and the mind of the Messiah while he's suffering for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. And what you see is the power of mind renewal in action in David and in the Messiah. In other words, he states what he's feeling, and then he goes back to reassuring his heart and his mind of the truth of him choosing faith to believe. And, and, and he does it a lot based on who is God. This is the character of God. I'm shifting my thinking back to spiritual truth about who God is. 
Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. And, but I am a worm. I mean, you know, we giggle, but think about this. This is how he felt about himself. Why? Why would Jesus say something like that about himself? Why would the Messiah feel this way about himself? Because he had become you on that cross. He had taken on the humanity of you, your sin nature, your body of flesh in this place. Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in him by grace through faith. I'm telling you, this is incredibly powerful if you take the time to meditate. I'll give you a list of other psalms that you can do this with, but this one is cited. It's actually referenced uh, multiple times in Hebrews and throughout the Gospels of Jesus citing back to this. So, I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Isn't that true? All those who see me ridicule me. That he would notice the faces of the people who are ridiculed. He suffered that in our place. He trusted in the Lord, let him, he delights in him. Is that, yeah, so let's do this. If we get to the end of one, go ahead and go. That way I'll know, and then we can bounce back. So, um, yeah, and then you can go back to the previous one. That'll be my clue. We're working these signals out as we go. Thank you. Uh, but, do, but do you see that? He didn't just hang there and pretend to be a sacrifice. There was an emotional experience that he was having. He suffered death. He suffered in your place, all right? So let's keep going. We'll go to John 19, 28. Um, <clears throat> After this, Jesus, knowing uh, this is on the cross, knowing that all the things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with some sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it in his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Say, it is finished. finished. And bowing his head, gave up his spirit. What is finished? Because a lot of times people will, you know what, I'm just going to read from this, that way I'll see it myself. Sorry. Uh, what is finished? Some, you know, some scholars, when you read this particular phrase, it is finished. It's a legal transaction that would be signed at the bottom of a bill. The debt is paid. The debt is paid. So it's almost like a, a legal statement. The debt is paid. It is finished. What he was doing was finishing the suffering of the penalty of the law. He was finishing the old covenant, including living within its laws perfectly, but then also becoming our sin and experiencing the penalty of breaking the law. So he fulfilled both sides of it, the perfect, perfect requirements of it, which qualified him to be our sacrifice, and then the penalty of it also. What was finished? Him suffering the penalty of God's wrath toward sin for you. That's what was finished. And the law of double jeopardy applies. God will not punish you for your sin. 
Jesus already paid for it. Now, does that make you want to run out and sin? If it does, let's, let's have a conversation because it's time for you to grow up. But that's what people think. You're preaching. All right, let's keep going. This is um, Luke's perspective here. Actually, I'm going to jump over here. I forgot I set myself up here. Where are we? Luke. All right, now, now, we're, now we're cooking with gas. All right, Luke 23, 43. Jesus said to him, now this is again on the cross. This is Luke's perspective. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, now, who's he speaking to? We know that, uh, that he was hung between two thieves, and he's speaking to one of them um, who seems to acknowledge him and, and express faith in him, at least belief. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I put this in here for a particular reason. Uh, I'm not trying to make you believe what I believe because there, there are some things about these points that aren't necessarily doctrinal, they're open for discussion and debate, but I do have an opinion. My opinion is the comma's in the wrong place here. The comma between you and today. So in other words, it prob in my perspective, it should read, to the thief on the cross, assuredly, I say to you today, say, I'm telling you right now, you're going to be with me in paradise. <laughs> do, you, do you see that? Now, if you don't have that perspective, that's fine. We, you know, I'm not, but I, I make that distinct because, you know, the, the, the punctuation was not inspired. This was at, later added to the original language, okay? And the same thing, well, let me stay on track. I think this is important because people will say Jesus went straight to the Father after he died on the cross. But that contradicts his statement when he came up uh, after the resurrection and Mary went to, to tend to the tomb and check on him. Um, and he said, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. So did he go straight to the Father or didn't he? I don't think that he did. All right, so let's keep going. Verse 44, uh, 44. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. So powerful. You know, you, you hear different uh, reports on the thickness of this veil. So if you're unfamiliar with what this is, under the old covenant for the Israelites, there was a sacrificial system set up for temporary atonement through the sacrificing of uh, doves and goats and bulls and different types of animals and different types of offerings for different things and um, and there was a one time a year uh, sacrifice where the priest would supply the, um, the offering. All the other times you would bring the offering. And this was indicative of God providing the lamb. It was set in the model of Abraham, God leading, calling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, knowing full well that he himself would provide the lamb. But he did that to reframe the kind of God that he is. Back then, they were used to God's needing a sacrifice to appease their anger. God did have anger and wrath towards sin and humanity, but he himself wanted to provide a lamb. He says, Jesus says of him, uh, uh, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, 
but a, but a body you have prepared for me, he says. Jesus being that body in the lamp. So anyway, there was a temple system where the priests reigned, you know, kind of ruled over offering sacrifices in this system that all pointed to Jesus. And the deepest part of it, because it was tiered as far as the entrance, the deepest part of it, only the priests could go into one time a year with the blood of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur lamb to offer for the whole nation of uh, Israel. And that, that secret place, the most holy of holies, had a veil. And they say it was probably about six inches thick. How tall was it, Sam? 40 feet, something like that. Probably 40, 30, 40 feet tall. And it ripped from the top to the bottom. Why? Who did that? God did that. Nobody could do that. There was an earthquake, but an earthquake didn't just rip the fabric. The fabric would have flowed. God made a statement and ripped the veil. And it was also a symbol of Him crushing the body of Christ, ripping the body of Christ for us. In the ripping of the veil, because it's said of His body, His body is the veil through which we enter into the presence the veil that separated humanity from the presence of God, the body through which we enter was ripped. It pleased God to crush him because of the effects. And that would be that we forever have access unhindered to the presence of God. And not just access, but to be indwelt by. That presence that if you... In fact, it wasn't even the full presence. If you read the... the uh, cloud and it would go down. So, so the priest would go in, offer the sacrifice, the cloud would come down, and then when it went back up, that was when the priest knew it could go back in. So the priest didn't even go into the unfiltered presence of God. It was the residual effects of the presence of God that he would go into. God himself would come down and receive the offering. And, but yet you, that power is in you. All right, let's keep going. Man. Uh, the veil was torn into, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, this phrase, into your hands I commit my spirit, I think it's the same type of thing that he's saying in the garden before he allows himself to be arrested in that, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I think it's a statement. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a description of his next location as much as it is a description of him being obedient to the will of God. A, a, a confession out of his own mouth that he's being obedient to the death of the cross. Are you with me? So I'm committing to you. Now, I think what happens next is probably, for me personally, uh, it's where I found freedom from fear. In other words, my story is kind of a crazy story. Wasn't raised in a Christian home, didn't know the Lord, um, got into drugs, and in this journey, in a particular point in that process, uh, the demonic realm became real to me, and I actually believed that I had died. Like there was a, this, this deception, and it wasn't just the effects of the drugs. Uh, it was a demonic deception that had convinced me to believe that I was dead and it was too late for me. And I lived that way for months. Um, and sometimes even would have flashbacks and 
grip of fear for you know a couple of years after that. But digging into the Psalms before anybody ever even taught me how to do that, I recognized in the Psalms because he was describing what I felt. I would see descriptions of what I believed was my future fate. In other words, eternity in hell, cut off from God because it was too late for me. And I would read these Psalms and I would see, man, he's, this person is experiencing what I'm experiencing emotionally and mentally. And then finally discovering that it was Christ that suffered in that place for us. So this is personal for me, but I don't want to just build a doctrine on personal experience. That's why we're reading a litany of Scripture today. You're with me. So he passed into the grave. And even the Apostles' Creed says in one particular phrase, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. So that's what we're talking about today, descending into Hades or descending into hell. Hell is an English word. It it should be interpreted Hades because when we think hell, we think of what's biblically described as the lake of fire. The lake of fire exists. It was created for the fallen angels, but unbelieving humans will be cast there at the final judgment. What we're waiting for between now and in the end, there's a resurrection coming. When everybody is brought up before the Lord and, and you are judged de- depending on whether or not you have Christ. Christians will go before the judgment seat of Christ to receive reward. And that's the point when God says to, to unbelievers, um, depart, no, no, yeah, depart from me, I never knew you. And basically at that point, Unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire. Hell or Hades in the Greek or Sheol in the Hebrew is where uh, wicked went when they died before Christ. And the righteous would go to paradise. And you've heard that, you know, Jesus has a story, a parable about that. And, and people, you know, some of the people kind of debate these types of things and it's fine. I'm, I'm, I, again, I'm not trying to say this is exactly how it is. Some of these points are, some are open for debate, but, but we do know that at the resurrection, and whatever happens between now and the resurrection, man, have we not splintered ourselves over eschatological differences? You know what I mean? I mean, let, let's like let's people have their let people have their beliefs and opinions without ridiculing others. But here's what we do know: Jesus gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, the wheat is growing and the tares are growing. A lot of people in Christianity are focused on the weeds, on the tares. In other words, the darkness, the things that are going bad, and things are going bad. Man, let me stay on track here. I just, I love this topic because, you know, and I could talk about it just in so many details, but um, hell here that we're about to read is Hades or Sheol, not the lake of fire. Jesus did not go into the lake of fire. No one has been cast into the lake of fire yet that we know of because the, 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 the order of events has not yet come to the point where God does that. At a certain point, at the final judgment, God will put 
unbelieving humans into that lake of fire, the fallen angels, and it says even death, hell, and the grave are thrown into that place. Not even the opportunity for sin to have a voice is thrown into that place. And there's debate on what happens to a human once it goes into that place. It's either conscious eternal torment or it perishes. Perish could mean extinguishes. Those are two beliefs that are within legal Christian orthodoxy. I know which one I hope is true, but there's a case for both. There's a case for eternal conscious torment, and there's a case for uh, you don't live forever if you haven't received the gift of eternal life. I don't know which one it is. Either way, I don't want to go there, and I don't want anybody to go there. Amen. Are you with me? Yeah. Some people get upset about that. They really want you to have a stance on it. Um, anyway, that's another topic, another conversation. Let's keep going. So we're talking about what happened to Jesus as soon as he died. I think he went into the grave, into Hades, and suffered in the first part of his experience there. I think it's consistent with him suffered, having suffered on the cross. I think it's consistent with his human experience to break the power of everything that could come against humanity and separate us from God so that forever in him, nothing that exists could ever have power over us if we're in him, including death, hell, and the grave. Let's keep going. Ephesians 4. So a little bit of explanation. Now, again, some people think that he just went down there victoriously. Um, I think there was an element of suffering in the beginning, and then it transitioned. Um, it, for, for more insight on that, you can look at Psalm 18, and that's some more of your homework this week. There's a few psalms that I'd love for you to go through and read. In fact, I think Psalm 18 is, is a, a first-person experience of the Messiah in the grave and experiencing God coming down to save him, and then the resurrection had to go into that place. Uh, are you with me? His experience, and, and I hope that you, you take some personal things out of it for years, because I'm not building up to some application point that I'm going to tell you what to do with this. It's kind of along the way, just be thankful, right? Be thankful for what he's done. So, but to each, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, um, and this is quoting, I don't have that site in here. This is quoting an Old Covenant passage, uh, Old Testament. Uh, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So, leading captivity captive is when he would, well, I'll get ahead of myself. Let's keep going. Verse 9, now this Okay, so this is part of the why that I believe he had to go into the grave as you to overcome that place. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I see it this way. A human had to experience the full penalty of everything that a human could experience. No human qualified for that, so God became human, limited himself. We read this last week, emptied himself, 
was tempted in every way like we are yet without sin, but became sin on the cross, experienced the full penalty in his body on the cross and in the grave. So that the grave, once conquered, would ne- a human had gained access and authority and power over that place. Are you with me? Because he'd given dominion to us. Now, there's some elements that we can't understand, but go back to verse 9 there. Just so you know, there are some scholars that would say um, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Some would say that that is talking about the earth itself, not the pit or the depths of the earth, because Hades is always described as being in the earth. And whether it is or not, we don't know. It sounds kind of like it might be. Uh, but, you know, just so you know, there are people that believe this. So what happened? One of the things that happened is Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You leave it on that one. Um, in the grave, at a certain point, we know this happened. Now, it was, it was common And you see this in the Old Testament where God would lead kings in to overtake, you know, these Nephilim, demonic half-breed tribes and societies, and he'd tell them, by the way, if you ever read in Scripture and you're reading the Old Testament and you see where God said, go in, kill them all, kill the women, kill the children, don't even take the gold. Those are wicked, fallen, half-breed offspring of fallen angels. They're not human. They're hybrid. That, that's a, I did a, actually, I did a series on that called Know Your Enemy. If that piques your interest, go back just a few, couple of months ago. It's on our YouTube channel. And I go through the origins of demons and what the fallen angels were trying to accomplish and how their will still is kind of infiltrated into the elite of today. But I won't cover all that again. But, one, but it, you look in um, the Old Testament Uh, occurrences when a king would conquer one of these enemy of God nations, one of the things that the king would do would be to go and capture the other king if he wasn't dead, and he would cut off his thumbs, cut off his big toes, oftentimes pull out his eyes, and wrap a chain around him and drag him through his own village and then his village or kingdom to show this king is conquered. The thumbs was so that he could never hold a sword again, and the feet, the toes, was so he could never run in battle again. Jesus did this to the demonic kingdom. He went down there and kicked some booty. Now, some people will say as soon as he came off the cross, he went down there and did that. If you want to believe that, that's fine. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't see it that way. I think there was an element that he experienced as a human before that aspect of it. So another point on this, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. You know, when you you really start digging for it, the exchange is everywhere. The just for the unjust. Man. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Now that's important. In the flesh, meaning in a body, as a human. That's why these statements are in there, so that we get it. But made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Leave it on 19, please. 
The spirits in prison, what's it talking about? Hades. Uh, they're, they're, remember when Jesus resurrected and it said that there were patriarchs and people that came up out of the grave with him? If you're unfamiliar with that story, go find it in Scripture as part of the as your study of the resurrection in the season. There are other people that resurrected with him. Uh, what he did, and probably because people had not yet had the opportunity uh, to enter into salvation through him because he'd not yet been sacrificed, but probably what happened is part of his grave experience, he went into this Hades area and preached the gospel and made a way for even those people down there to receive him and then led them into eternity with him. Pretty amazing. That, that's probably what it's referring to. Preached uh, to the spirits, because he specifically says spirits, right, in prison. Uh, verse 20, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah uh, with the ark, when the ark, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. All right. So there's a victorious aspect of his time in Hades. But again, let's look at some of these suffering aspects. Let's go to Acts 2. We're going to read kind of a large section here. Acts 2 is a really interesting sermon. It's Peter. It's after the Holy Spirit has been given. And Peter is prophesying what's going on. And in this part, he's prophesying to people that should know what, G, what the... That, that, He's preaching to people that should know that Jesus was the Messiah, and he's giving them further insight into what the Messiah accomplished. Are you with me? All right. Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel hear... So men of Israel, that, that frames who he's speaking to. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Now, this is Peter. What did Peter do not long before this? Historically, when you read the accounts of these guys, you know, that, that's one of the arguments that the resurrection happened is the boldness of his followers post-resurrection. Because if it was just made up, if they just took his body, then Peter wouldn't have had this boldness after he denied him to come back and preach in such a way where he risked his own life. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. To me, that's significant. He, he loosed the pains of death. He loosed Jesus from the pains of death. Now, I think... Some of these psalms are descriptive of the pains of death for Jesus. And again, personalize it, internalize it, think about it. Let it shape God's value for you. Let it shape your deeper understanding of your place in the kingdom of God. Let, let it shape you when you're feeling ashamed and afraid and guilty. Think about this about what Jesus was going through on your behalf. I mean, I, I'll say it this way. You owe it to Jesus to believe the best about yourself. You owe it 
to God, to honor the plan of salvation. And don't let yourself sit in darkness and sin and, and just negativity, demeaning yourself. How dare you devalue that which God loves? Are you with me? Man, take the time to persuade yourself of your value. You are worth so much more than you, your emotions dictate to you. There's power in that. Having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then in verse 25, which is a quote of Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And six, Psalm 16 is another one of those prophetic messianic passages. So where we are, Peter's describing to Israelites this God, Jesus is your Messiah. And then he dips back into the Psalms, which they would have been familiar with, to be more descriptive of what this Messiah of what Jesus accomplished. So in Acts 2, it's just quoting word for word Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Verse 25, Acts 2, For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Interesting, right? Another, phrase, another translation says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. So the language is important because it, it doesn't say you will not send my soul to Hades. It says you will not abandon me, in other words, leave me there. And it's this translation, you won't leave me there. To me, that means he's there. And he needs rescue from it. That's a key factor. He needs rescue from Hades. Why? Because that's where you would have gone. And he's there in your place. He didn't just pay the penalty of sin. He went into the pit as you to deliver you from it. Even hell has been paid for for you. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Dead, in the grave, experiencing your death, remaining faithful. And that faith is what overcame death. That faith, what he says right there, persuading his heart of the promise of God to him to forever be a king after the priest a king of the uh, priest after the order of the priest of Melchizedek he says Jesus is in there in that place as you remaining hopeful to God to keep his promise to him Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. Now this is where Peter gives the explanation that this is David prophesying of the Messiah. I'm, we're getting super technical today, but I hope that this is meaningful for you. Verse 29, 
Men and brethren, let me speak freely to, to you of the patriarch of David, that he is both dead and buried in his tomb with us. His tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. Peter is saying, David, foreseeing that through him would come the Christ, spoke concerning the Christ. The Psalms is full of David doing that. It's an incredibly powerful meditative exercise to read through the Psalms and find the ones where David is prophesying of the Messiah, just like Peter says he's doing right here. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corrupt. So that's referring to the time period of his body not beginning to decay. Uh, verse 32, then Jesus, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we were all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right. I mean, he just kind of, he just keeps hammering of who this Jesus is. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out. And again, remember, this is Pentecost. This is right after they've all been, they've all received the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues. He's given an explanation. Um, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens. He goes back to reiterate the point again that David is prophesying of the Messiah. To me, it's incredibly profound that we have a precedent that the Psalms are the prophetic words and thoughts and emotions of the Messiah. Verse 34, for David did not, not all of them, but when it applies, especially if they're directly referenced as they are here. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That was a promise of the father to the son that the son held on to in the grave. Verse 36, Therefore let all those of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Wow. All right. Psalm 18. Using that precedent, I think this applies to Christ's experience in the grave. Psalm 18, we're going to read verse 4 through 19. The pains or the sorrows of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. Remember, we're talking about you will not leave my soul in Hades. Sheol is the Hebrew word for Hades, same place. Uh, the sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. And if you don't know, I'll just, I'll just say the reason Psalms is the Hebrew is because the Old Testament is predominantly Hebrew and the New is uh, Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew, but that's what the spoke under the Roman rule. Um, in my distress, uh, so the, think about this one, verse 5, Psalm 18, verse 5, the sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. Verse 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. In my distress. <sighs> Again, I want you to get the point that Jesus conquered hell for you. It's not a threat to you. you are, are you in Christ? It's not a threat to you. 
Don't ever be afraid that God is going to leave you or send you to hell. Jesus has already conquered it for you. And if you're, you remain in the faith toward Him, not through your efforts and works, although your efforts and works should bear evidence of your faith, be, be confident in the security. Amen? All right. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and I cried out to my God. He hurt. Now, I personally think Psalm 18 is a first-person description of the Messiah transitioning into resurrection. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple and made and, and my cry from before him, came before Him even to His ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. I can just hear God saying, I'm going to get my boy and all those who would be in him. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed or bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire, verse 14. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, wrecking the dark kingdom. Lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them for you, Colossians 2.15. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Man, I hope that gives you goosebumps. If anything gives you goosebumps, I hope that does. And all of that pointed to, I mean, what did he accomplish in that, in that triumph? We then see these passages, Hebrews 2, 14. And as much then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood of Christ, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The fear of death is like a mosquito in your ear. Why? Because Christ has conquered it. Christ has conquered death. I don't, I don't know how you're responding to this, 
But inside of me, it just, it's like, it's so vast that his faith conquered death. And we know Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Can we, can we put that up there, Hans? I didn't have that in the notes, but Galatians 2.20, I want you to see it. Y'all appreciate Hans keeping up with me back there. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm going to quote the version I know. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Amen. Amen. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by, now this says in the Son of God, and I think it's both. And Sam and I have had a lot of conversations about this. I live by, King James says, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think it's important to get the of right because you live by the faith that Christ has, and his faith is more powerful than even death. That's the kind of faith that is alive inside of you. And I'm not talking about faith in a sense where you confess and run on at the mouth and try to convince God to do things for you because that's not what we're trying to do with God. He's already given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We are already complete in Him. All of His promises are yes and amen. So faith is modeled in the centurion soldier who when he recognized the authority of Christ said, just, just send the word. That's how we want to have faith, confidence in His authority. And what has His authority accomplished? All things that pertain unto life and godliness have already been given unto you. You are hidden with Christ in Him. You have been sanctified and made holy in Him. All His promises are yes and amen in and for you. By His stripes, you are healed. You're not, you're not then going to try to use faith to work something up to get God to give it to you. You are making statements of an already completed reality Amen. that you can enter and experience because it's already paid for. It's true of your spirit. And it's available to experience. It being everything that He paid for. Why? Because it's so deep and complete. Last passage, we made it. You can go to the Revelation one because this is where we stand now. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me, this is Jesus, and he's saying this to even you, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Don't be afraid. 
ever. Why would you ever be afraid when this is who loves you? Nothing can come against you. Nothing. And everything he paid for is available for you to experience because he holds all the authority. And he wants it for you. He's a good father. Every description we see of Jesus talking about the father, he's good. And he wants for you everything that he paid for you to have. Amen. Let's stand up. Just let the Holy Spirit minister to you for just a moment. Chris, are you hearing a song? Where is he? Did he have to go? Oh. Just imagine a really pretty song. You want to play with, why don't you play for us? Susan, thank you. You can bring the keys up there, Travis. I just want to let the Holy Spirit simmer with this. Just, just a couple of minutes here. I just want you to think about it. Just ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate to you the things that, that He would want you to take away today. You know, just ask the Holy Spirit to uh, highlight to you that which He wants you to experience because of what He accomplished on your behalf. Holy Spirit, we open our hearts to you to just give us revelation and insight of who we are in you, of the effects of the cross, this authority that we now live in. Jesus, we trust you. Jesus, we magnify you. Thank you. Just tell him thank you. We worship you, Lord. I'm just imagining him in the grave. I'm imagining him down there suffering for me to set me free. Mostly so that I don't have to be afraid. I don't, ever have, I don't ever have to be afraid of being cut off from God. Because that place has no power over me. The debt is paid. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you.